Chapter 4 of The Empty Sack by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 4 The Follets came together every evening about six, chiefly by the process known to American cities as commuting. Commuting brought them to number 11 Indiana Avenue, Pemberton Heights. Seen from the New York riverfront, Pemberton Heights, on top of a great cliff on the New Jersey side of the Hudson, suggests a battlemented parapet. By day its outline is a fringe against the sky. By night its clustering lights are like a constellation. Indiana Avenue is one of those rare spots in the neighbourhood of New York where a measure of beauty is still reserved for the relatively poor. The heights are too high for the railways to scale, too inconvenient for factories. The not very well-to-do can find shelter there, as the medieval peoples of the Mediterranean coast found it in the rock towns, where the pirates couldn't follow them. It is hardly conceivable that industry will ever climb to this uncomfortable perch, or that much competition will put up rents. Too inaccessible for the social rich, and too isolated for the still more social poor, Pemberton Heights is the refuge of those who don't mind the trouble of getting there for the sake of the compensation. The compensation is largely in the way of air and panorama. Both have a tendency to take away your breath. You would hardly believe that so much of New York could be visible all at once. The gigantic profile of Manhattan is sketched in here with a single stroke, while the river is thronged like a busy street seen from the top of a tower. City smoke rolls up and ocean mist rolls in while you're looking on. Sunrise, moonrise, moonset, sunset. Stars in the heaven and lights along the darkened waterway afford to the not-very-well-to-do, cooped up all day in kitchens, offices and factories, a morning and evening glimpse into the ecstatic. Number 11 was somewhat withdrawn from all this towards the middle of the plateau. Built at a period when an architect's ambition was chiefly to do something singular, it had a great deal of sloping roof, with windows where he would not expect them. Pemberton Heights been held up bravely to rain and snow, the colour of the house was a weather-beaten brown. Two hydrangea trees, shaped like open umbrellas, and covered now with white blossoms fading to rose, stood one on each side of the front door, in the centre of two tiny grass-plots. There was a piazza, of course, where most of the family leisure was passed, and in the yard behind the house there stood a cherry-tree. All up and down the street for the length of about half a mile were similar little houses, each with its piazza and its architectural oddity, homes of the not very well-to-do, content with their relative poverty. Among themselves they formed a society as distinct and as active as that of Marylow Park, and out of it they got as much pleasure as the Sidebottoms and Collinghams from their more exclusive foregatherings. In this soil, the Follets had taken root with the ease of transportation of the Anglo-Saxon race. Drawn to Pemberton Heights by the presence there of other Canadians, Josiah had bought the little house for seven thousand dollars. On this he had paid four, which it was his ruling desire to pay off. The mild, tenacious optimism of his nature convinced him he should be able to do this, in spite of the danger of being fired hanging over him for two years. The fact that, though the months kept passing, that sword didn't fall, inspired the belief that it never would. He'd grown so sure of this 
that with regard to the warning issued by Collingham, he had never taken his wife into his confidence. For one thing, it was useless to alarm her when it might not be without cause, and for another. But that was the secret tragedy of Josiah's life. He had not made good the promise he gave when Lizzie Scarborough married him, and the falling of the sword would be the final proof of it. It would mean that his whole patient, painstaking life had fitted him for nothing better than the scrap-heap. That he should come to such an end he couldn't believe possible. That after nearly fifty years of uncomplaining drudgery he should be flung aside as useless to man in general, and worse than useless to his family, was not, he argued, in keeping with the will of God. It was to the will of God he trusted more than to the mercy of Bradley Collingham, though he trusted to them both. When he married Lizzie, in the little town of Lisgar, Nova Scotia, he'd been a bank clerk. A bank clerk in Canada is a kind of young nobleman at the beginning of what may be a striking career, after the manner of a fledgling in diplomacy. The banking institutions being few and large, the employees are moved from post to post, much like attaches or army officers. As moves bring promotion, the clerk becomes a teller, and the teller a cashier, and the cashier a branch manager, and the branch manager a wealthy man in touch with world-wide issues. It was the kind of progress Josiah had expected when he married Lizzie Scarborough, the kind of future they dreamed of and talked about, and which never came. Josiah lacked something. You couldn't put your finger on the floor in his energy, but you knew it was there. He was moved about, of course, but with little or no promotion. Other men got that, but he was ignored. Harum-scarum young fellows whose ignorance of bookkeeping was a scandal were lifted over his head, while he and Lizzie stared at each other in perplexity. Hardest of all for him was that, as years went by, Lizzie herself lost belief in him. More tender with him for his failure, she nevertheless saw that he was not the man she supposed in the gay young days at Liscar, and he saw that she saw. She gave up the hope of promotion before he did. The best to which they came to a spa was a raise. It was bitter for Lizzie because, as she was fond of saying to herself, and now and then to the children, she had been born a lady. This was no more than the truth. Whatever the meaning given to the word, Lizzie fulfilled it, though her claims were more than moral ones. The Scarboroughs had been great people in Massachusetts before the Revolution. The old Scarborough mansion, still standing in Cambridge, bears witness to the generous scale on which they lived. But they left it as it stood, with its pictures, its silver, its furniture, its stores, rather than break their tie with England. Scorned by the country from which they fled, and ignored by that to which they remained true, their history on Nova Scotian soil was chiefly one of dissent. A few of them prospered, a few reached high positions in the adopted land, but most of them lacked opportunity, as well as the will, to create it. True, Lizzie's father was a clergyman, but her sisters married poorly. Her brothers dropped into any chance jobs that came their way, while she herself got only such fulfilment of her dreams as she found at Pemberton Heights. Even the move to New York, which Josiah had made when convinced that the Bank of the Maritime Provinces held no further hope for him, had not greatly prospered them. Five years of drifting between one bank and another, 
were followed by five steady years with Collingham and Law. But even that peaceful time was now at an end. While the Collinghams were drinking tea on the flagged terrace, and Jenny was on the ferry-boat, and Teddy dressing and skylarking after his plunge at the gym, and Follett nearing home, Lizzie was on her knees pinning up the draperies she was making over for Gussie. Pansy, the daughter of a bulldog and a Boston terrier, whose pansy face had it in it more than a human yearning, stood looking on, with forelegs wide apart. Gussie was fifteen, pretty, pert, and impatient. "'Everybody'll see that it's the old thing you've been wearing since I don't know when.' According to this plaint, Lizzie thought it useless to reply. "'I'd rather not have a rag to wear than a thing everyone's sick of the sight of. Mamma, why can't I have a new dress right out and out?' "'My darling, you'll have a new dress when your father gets his rays. It must come before long, but I can't possibly give it to you till then.' "'I wish you'd stop talking.' came from Gladys, who was busy with her lessons in a corner. "'How can I study with all this row going on? Mamma, what's the meaning of coagulation?' Coagulation explained, the fitting finished, and a dispute adjusted between the two children. Lizzie began to spread the table for supper, Gussie helping her. Most of the downstairs portion of the house being thrown into one large living-room, the dining-table stood at the end nearest to the kitchen and the pantry. It was a pleasure to watch the supple movements of Gussie's figure, and the flittings of her slim-wristed hands as she took the plates and laid them in their places. Most people said she would one day be prettier than Jenny, but as yet there was only promise. Quite apparent was the fact that the mother had been more beautiful than any of her daughters was ever likely to become. At fifty-odd it was a beauty that still had youth in it. Worn with the duties of providing for a husband and four children, it retained a quality proud and aloof. In her scouring and cooking and endless domestic round, Lizzie was like an actress dressed and made up for a humble part rather than really living it. The Scarborough tradition, which had first refused to bend to king against people and again to yield to people against king, had survived in this woman fighting for her inner life against failure, poverty, and sordidness. She was singing at her work when the front door opened and Josiah came in. He stood for a minute in the little entry, surveying the living room absently, while Pansy pranced about his feet. Gladys was still at her lessons, Gussie laying out the knives and forks. "'Where's your mother?' Gladys jumped up and ran to him. She was his youngest, his darling, just ever twelve. He'd always hoped to do better by her than by the older ones. "'Hello, Daddy!' With her arms round his neck, she was putting his face down to hers. "'Where's your mother?' he asked of Gussie, having advanced into the room. Gussie looked up from her task to inform him that her mother was in the kitchen, but seeing his grey face and shambling gait, she paused with a fork in her hand. "'You're right, Daddy, aren't you?' The sound of voices having called Lizzie from her work, she stood on the threshold of the pantry, drying her hands on the corner of her apron. Before he said a word, she knew that the calamity which forever threatens those dependent on a weekly wage had fallen on the family. "'Lizzie, I'm fired.' She had never had to take a blow like this, not even when the three who came before Jenny had died in babyhood. This was the worst and hardest thing her imagination could conjure up, 
because it meant not only the sweeping away of their meagre income, but her husband's defeat as a man. Going to him, she laid her hands on his shoulders, and tried to look into the eyes that avoided hers in shame. "'We'll meet it, Joe,' she said quietly. "'We've been through other things. I've saved a little money ahead, nearly a hundred dollars. Don't feel badly. I'm glad you're out of Collingham and Laws, where you've said yourself that your desk was in a draft. You'll get another job, with bigger pay, and perhaps—' She sprang to the great glorious hope she was always cherishing— and perhaps Teddy will earn more money and be a great success. "'Hello, Ma!' Teddy himself was swinging down the room, Pansy capering round him with her silvery bark. Having tossed his cap on the sofa, he caught his mother in a bearish hug. Fresh from his bath, gleaming, ruddy, clear-eyed, stocky rather than short, he was a Herculean cub, the making of a man but as yet with no soul beyond play. No one had ever seen him serious. It was a drawback to him at Collingham and Laws, where he skylarked his way through everything. "'You must knock the song and dance out of that young blood,' was Mr. Bickley's report on him, "'or he'll never earn his pay.' Before his mother could say anything, he was tickling her under the chin with little clicks of the tongue, Pansy assisting by springing halfway to his shoulder. The sport ended, he held her out at his strong arm's length, laughing down into her eyes. "'Good old Ma, the best ever!' "'What have you got for supper?' She told him as nearly as possible, as if nothing else was on her mind. Then she added, "'You've got to know, Teddy, darling, they've discharged your father from Collingham and Laws.' Confusedly, Teddy Follett knew he had received a summons, the call to be a man. Hitherto he had been a boy. He had thought himself a boy. He had called himself a boy. Even in the Navy he had been with boys who were treated as boys.' The pang of agony he felt now was that he was a boy still, with a man's part to play. He did his best to play it on the instant. "'Oh, is he? And that's all right. I'll be making more money soon, and be able to swing the whole thing.' Gussie was here, the discordant element. "'You've got to make it pretty quick, then, and be smarter than you've ever been before.' He turned away from the group in which his mother watched him with adoring eyes, while his father stood with gaze cast down like a criminal. "'I'm sorry to put the burden on you at your age, my boy,' he said brokenly. "'But perhaps I may get another job after all, and a little pay better.' Teddy didn't hear this, not that he was so far away, but because he was listening to that call which seemed so impossible to respond to. He would have to be a man, he would have to earn big money, and at present he didn't see how.' Fifty bucks a week, he was saying to himself, was hardly enough to run the family, and he had only eighteen. He was standing with his back to them all, his hands in his pockets, when the front door opened again. Jenny came in, all aglow and abloom, after her walk from the street-cars. "'Well, what's the pose?' she asked briskly, of Teddy, beginning to take off her jacket. "'He ought to be modelled to a sculptor.' "'Jen,' he whispered hoarsely, before she could join the others, Pa's fired. To take this information in, Jenny paused with her arm still outstretched in the act of taking off her jacket. Do you mean they don't want him any more at Collingham and Laws? That's the right number. But, but what are we going to do? That's for you and me to say. It's up to us, Jen. 
Pa'll never get another job, not on your life, unless it's running a lift. We've got to shoulder it, you and me, between us. Jenny passed on into the room and down to the group round the table. The glow had gone out of her cheeks, but she was free from her brother's dismay. To begin with, she was a woman, and he was only a man. All his adventures would have to be dull ones in the line of work, whereas hers... She could hear Ray saying, as he had said only two hours ago, "'You could marry Bob Collingham if you wanted to.' She didn't want to, as far as that went. But if the worst were to come to the worst, they should be in need of bread. "'Hello, Mother. Hello, Daddy.' Jenny was quite self-possessed. "'Teddy's been telling me. Too bad, isn't it? But something will turn up. What is there for supper, Gus?' Gussie minced round the table, putting on the salt cellars. "'There's pickled hummingbirds for princesses,' she said witheringly. "'After that there'll be honeydew jam.' "'Then I'll go up and take my hat off.' This coolness had the inspiring effect of an officer's calm on a sinking ship. It was an indication that life could go on as usual, and if life could go on as usual, all wasn't lost. "'And for mercy's sake,' Jenny added, turning to leave them. "'Don't everybody look so glum. "'Why, if you knew what I could tell you, "'you'd all be ordering champagne.' "'So they were tidied over the dreadful minute, "'which meant that they found power to go on "'with the preparations for supper, "'and to sit down to supper itself. "'There the old man cheered up sufficiently "'to be able to tell what had passed "'between him and the head of the firm. "'He was still doing this when Teddy sprang to his feet,' "'striking the table with a blow that made the dishes jump. "'God damn Bradley Collingham!' he cried with his mouth full. "'I'll do something to get even with him yet, "'if I have to go to the chair for it.' "'Sit down, you great gump, talking like that!' Gussie pulled her brother by the coat till he sank back into his seat. "'Mamma, you should send him away from the table.' "'That's a very wicked thing to say, my boy,' Josiah was beginning. "'Let him talk as he likes,' the mother broke in calmly. "'Going to the chair can't be so terrible, if you have a reason.' She went on carving as if she had said nothing strange. "'Well, Ma, I call that the limit,' Jenny commented. "'Oh, no, it isn't,' the mother returned, with the new strength which seemed to have come to her within half an hour. "'I'm ready to say a good deal more.' She looked adoringly towards Teddy who, after his outburst, had returned sheepishly to his plate, while Pansy stood apart from them all, wise, yearning, and yet implacable, a little doggy fate. End of chapter 4